It is another blessed occasion we've been given this Sunday afternoon to gather, to assemble in the way that we are, to look to one far higher and far wiser than we, to offer to him our heartfelt adoration, and to, with excitement, appreciate the instruction, the tips of wisdom he has so marvelously and wonderfully left, left for us. As you know, we come this evening to yet another installment in the series of lessons on finances. That is to say, this particular topic, that is the title of that lesson, Financial Advice from Solomon. Isn't it amazing that this gentleman we encounter in the Old Testament, Solomon, he not only was incredibly wealthy, but he was also, of course, at least at that time in his life, a man who knew a great deal about wisdom, because, of course, God had so blessed him in that way. And yet, as he penned by inspiration these things for us, they certainly can serve for you and me to this day still with some marvelous and powerful statements about finances. Now, this opening slide is a quick rehearsal of the two previous lessons. We have already looked at 11 lessons, that is to say, particular tips or words of wisdom from the book of Proverbs mostly, about how to handle riches, about how to utilize them in the way that would please God. Maybe the grandest lesson of all was the first one, the fact that we are not the ultimate owners of these things we have. It all belongs to the God of heaven. And because of that, of course, it should be our desire to make certain that we devote those things to Him that would be sufficiently pleasing. As you can see among all those lessons, we have highlighted many things and we'll continue that set of studies even tonight. As always, I would use this as an opportunity to say, if you do wish to revisit any of those lessons, remember, all of it's on the website. So you can always pull those back up, listen to them, if that would be of interest to you. Because tonight, we'll just pick up right where we left off last time. The twelfth lesson in the series, again taken from the book of Proverbs, We'll begin in the following way, and it calls before us this observation, and it could well be. It again is easy enough to think of situations wherein this matter has been directly before us. In Proverbs 14, verse number 20, the Word of God has these words to share with us. The poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich hath many friends. Those individuals who are, of course, blessed with wealth and are such that they have a great deal of it, almost certainly there will be a large number of others who will share and ex at least express interest in them. And in many instances, unfortunately, that interest that's shown is not for the well-being of the person. It's because of interest in the money. In other words, they will attempt to do things to get in the graces of this individual so that they ultimately can avail themselves to some extent of the wealth. That isn't the only verse. Notice Proverbs 19.4, which is in some ways even stronger. At that time, the inspired writer says, Wealth maketh many friends, but the poor is separated from his neighbor. Isn't it true that, in fact, we have some instance of this in that parable of Luke 15? There was, of course, a younger man who got the inheritance coming to him. Daddy gave it to him. And off he went into a far country, the text informs us. And while there, there was a lot of friendship at first. But after the money was gone, the friends were gone too. 
After the money was, in fact, evaporated or used up, there was no longer people as interested in him. And he found himself by and large alone. All of that to simply say, you and I must in wisdom appreciate that there will be those in this world motivated by the devil, motivated by not love for the person, but love for the person's money. For that reason, look at these words of wisdom. Some people, unfortunately, do not have pure motives. They are greedy. They are those who, again, are quite interested in wealth or something directly related to it. It may be you and I have known individuals, sadly, who operate like this. They will befriend those perhaps that are lonely. They'll befriend those who are aged. They'll befriend those who otherwise have a fair amount of wealth. And they do that not always out of love for the person. And then after that individual perhaps passes on or becomes sufficiently infirmed, they often bequeath to this younger person a great deal of wealth and money. You and I can say, again, it's rather sad when it actually develops that way. But for right now, let's close that slide by saying, our Savior was wise in this regard, was I tell you? There was a pattern highlighted in John chapter 6, verse 26. Wasn't it true at that time that there already were those who, of course, had begun to follow Jesus, but the text is rather clear. Why were they doing it? Was it a love for the truth? Was it that they were motivated by the messages that He taught? Was it the fact that they were so enamored by the pure teaching that He had delivered? And the answer is no. The text says, Jesus speaking said, You follow me because you ate of the loaves and fishes. They had gotten a free meal out of it. And that's what motivated them, at least for a little while, to continue in that following. And the Lord, again, made observation of that truth. Today, there's still those motivated by things like that. That's the reason, of course, even the church, our elders, very careful when they're individuals that come and ask for benevolent help or money. Sometimes, sadly, there are people that have lied to churches. I'm destitute and I'm poor and I can't pay the bills. And after you help them, you soon learn, oddly enough, when you perhaps see them in a public place in Cookville, they really did have plenty of funding. They were only, in fact, being the agents of evil. You and I personally, of course, have to be a, a wise of the same thing. Let's go to the bottom of that slide and note this. This time, again, looking at the book of Proverbs, pointing the finger at Proverbs 28, 19. Late in that book, listen to these rather amazing words. When it comes to you and I and an understanding of these matters and wealth that we've been given... He that tilleth his land shall have plenty of bread, but he that followeth after vain persons shall have poverty enough. The latter part of that verse points us in this direction. You may notice the word persons is in italics in the King James translation. That word has been supplied by the translators. In other words, it might actually be able to be read like this. He that followeth after vain shall have poverty enough. There are things in life, of course, that are vain. Not to say by, and all, by themselves they're sinful, but they are nonetheless unprofitable. They are nonetheless empty. They are nonetheless insufficient to bring about that which is ultimately of the kind of character that the Bible would endorse. 
you and I thus here are warned. We should be cautious and not invest sufficiently of that which God has given us in the pursuit of that which is vain. There are things in life that are worthwhile, things in life that are noble and good and honorable, and there are other things that are just empty. They're just vain. You and I might, as we close that slide, notice that in the modern age, at least, there are a number of examples of these things. Of course, you and I have been able to appreciate with technology and with other opportunities. Do you know of any, anyone who perhaps invests five, six, seven hours a day playing video games, sitting idly by and searching through Internet sites, now again, it may not be that they're doing anything evil by virtue in and of itself, but may we ask, is it a sound and perfectly good and profitable use of time to invest seven or eight hours a day playing video games? Wouldn't it be better to learn some useful trade, to in fact perhaps give study or at least efforts to those things that are helpful in the lives and minds of other people, including oneself? It's merely a question. Sure enough, it would do us well to ask, is this activity that which would honor and give attention to the things of heaven? Or is this more on the side of vanity? Maybe one more thing as you and I close that slide. Is that this particular verse again says in Hebrew parallelism, that he that tilleth his land shall have plenty. And it's only then that this pursuit of vanity is highlighted. The inspired writer says, if you pursue vanity too much, you'll come to poverty. Now, you and I can see that because your mind will not have been directed to what's profitable and workable, but rather it'll be devoted again to what's empty, to what is vain. And so, lesson number two for the night has been that one. Let's turn the slide and look at the 14th lesson in the series. This time taken from yet another verse in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 21, verse number 5. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of everyone that is hasty, only to want. The original language that was used, of course, in Hebrew to write that has within it thoughts that point us in some of these directions. The encouragement, if you please, to you and to me to be thoughtful. Or in other words, to be rather diligent, even when it comes to matters touching the subject before us. Let's note the verse again with a bit of emphasis this time. The thoughts of the diligent. Now that word diligent again directs to one that has vision. One who has had sufficiently in preparation so that these matters are the working toward a goal that is to be reached. Diligence. But it goes on to say, that's what arrives at plenteousness. On the other hand, those that are hasty, they have not followed a sufficient plan. They have not even devoted, perhaps, even any matters of thought concerning these things. And so it is, he says, that that situation produces want. There will not be sufficient to take care of the needs. It produces want. That lesson, then, I've asked you to consider this. There are things in our life we're called upon to prioritize. My giving to God, that's commanded of you and me. Am I making sufficient to ensure that that is as it ought to be? Or am I giving God the scraps?
because of my lack of planning, am I just giving to Him whatever's left over, for example? If that be true, that reflects poorly upon me. It reflects poorly upon my devotion to Him. And in fact, I'm not putting my money where my mouth says it ought to be. If you and I are encouraged to put as priority number one, seek ye first the kingdom of God, does my giving reflect that? Does my giving indicate that those words are really true in my heart? That's a question each of us will have to answer individually. But the question is certainly a good one. Not only that, notice again the latter part of the verse. Everyone that is hasty, that word in the original Hebrew, that word hasty, it again, it identifies one who is rather quick, or on the other hand, one who has not invested appropriate thought in the matter at hand. Sometimes, I suppose, all of us, at least in life, in various ways, in the spur of a moment, are called upon to act in a quick way. But that doesn't set aside the fact we're encouraged in verses like this one to have a financial plan so that we are diligent and we take care of the blessings that God has given us. Some might even call this a budget. Do I have the means whereby I am making decisions that would be consistent with the wisdom of financial planning? Now, certainly there are those in our world who are professionals at this, and I'm sure they'd be willing to offer us help or at least to give us words of advice. But surely you and I would understand the need to be very wise in this. Let's close that particular point like this. It would seem then in matters like this, the Word of God would encourage us not to be haphazard with our finances, to ensure that we are dutiful with respect to the blessings in that way He's given us. As we continue in the series, we'll have more to say about that admittedly, but at least this particular lesson tonight has already made that clear enough. Lesson 15 in the series, the viewpoint toward money. Could I invite you to look at Proverbs 28, verse 22? What viewpoint toward money is urged upon us in a verse like this one? Verse 22 says, He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye, and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. At first reading, that verse may sound rather intriguing. I've developed it under a tool, under a heading like this, how one should view money. It is a tool. It really is a tool, and this particular of that leads me to ask this question. How does God look upon a person who's stingy, who takes the wealth, the opportunity for it that's been given, and although the person acquires a sufficient amount of it, has no interest in using it? In fact, may even become rather upset at any suggestion that it ought to be used. It's to be hoarded, perhaps, this person feels. It is to be saved, and it is to be such that, not spent. As you and I give thought to that, have you known individuals who perhaps they were well enough off financially, and yet they chose for themselves and their family to suffer? Perhaps not even having enough heat, enough food, enough other particulars in life that could have made life far at least less unpleasant. Look at some of these thoughts. I can't help but think about the Lord's teaching in Luke 12. 
as often as we've reflected upon the wealth of this man, as Jesus spoke this unforgettable parable, He said there was a certain man whose crops brought forth abundantly. So much so that the man made this decision. What am I going to do with all of this? Here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and I will lay up all of these things with this goal. Soul, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry, for thou hast many goods laid up for many years. Isn't it true that God had the final say in that? God, in fact, said, This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? In other words, the far better idea was to appreciate the nature of who had given these things and to put them to appropriate use. Isn't it true that in Matthew 25, there was a man who had received a good amount? Oh, he hadn't received as much as the five-talent man. And he hadn't even received as much as the two-talent man. But what he took, he went and hid it. It was not his intent to use it. It was not his intent to appreciate anything about the character in that regard. And the master said this, At the very least you should have given it so that I could have received the interest. And he hadn't even done that. God does not want us simply to hoard without any usability those things that we've been given. He wants us to make appropriate application and recognize that if we will put those to use, He will ensure to bless us with even more than we have utilized from it. You may notice near the bottom of that slide, it is in this connection that one must be mighty cautious because that would be enough to condemn us. If I have loved money, what is it that Paul wrote? The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after, they have erred from the faith. They are no longer in the friendly confines of faithfulness to God, having erred therefrom. That text then in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, reminds us that we should appreciate that money is not a God to be worshipped. Wealth is not a God to be worshipped. It is merely a tool that God has given us for the means whereby we and our family and those others that we can support are able to sojourn our way through this life acceptably. As we close that particular point, isn't it interesting that some of the ways that this is described points you otherwise to the recklessness which sometimes we recognize. The Bible paints it a picture. It's just as wrong to be wasteful as it is to hoard things up and to worship the things that we have. The next lesson in, in our study tonight, the next lesson in this particular series, in many ways looks to the other side of the coin. That is to say, in the usability of what we've been given, what does the Word of God have to say about things like investment? In things like a properness in relation to the using of it with an event or consideration to what the future might return. We'll look at a verse like Proverbs 14, verse 14. In that ancient agricultural society, clearly the idea there will be a pattern or at least a principle that can be of some help for us. It reads like this, Where no oxen are, the crib is clean. Isn't that true? 
a farmer who had no oxen, you'd be able to maintain a clean crib all right. But look at how the verse continues. But much increase is by the strength of the ox. You might be able to keep the crib clean. But wouldn't it be better to have the requirement of cleaning the crib if you also had the ox to do the work? That principle might be very meaningful. When God blesses us sufficiently, we may appreciate the placement of a wise and a sound investment in such a way, you see, that we are following a principle much like this, investing in something that might lead to a grander return or at least a good utility of that which God has blessed us with. No wonder that light, you can look at some of these things. When you and I invest in something, maybe a young couple buys a parcel of land. Well, that may well require a significant investment. And there may well be a mortgage then on the house, and there may well be extensive payments on the cars. But you see, that kind of investment may well be needful for the well-being of the family and for the provision of those things that would be in due order. You might have to invest. It isn't wrong, you see, to do those kinds of things in the same way that the ancient man would have had to invest to buy the ox. Invest to buy those things necessary to upkeep the ox. But you see, the Bible didn't condemn having the ox. The ox was critical for the increase. Look at that next set of ideas on that slide. For us today, something quite similar. We might find it a great blessing and an opportunity that God has given us to invest appropriately some of that which God has given us for the matters touching the well-being of ourselves and also of our family. And it's also interesting in that, in that light that that lesson is really going to point us to another one. This next lesson, the one that is number 17, really connects to that one, though, in a very interesting fashion. It has to do with borrowing. Now, we've just learned that it's not by itself wrong to borrow. But would it be possible for an individual, perhaps, to acquire and take on a sufficient amount of borrowing that may well handicap himself and his family sufficiently that really could be not only hazardous, but in fact would not be in keeping with the teaching of the Bible? Let's develop some of those things like this. In Proverbs 22, verse number 27 is where we'll begin, but we'll notice a few other things on that slide. Chapter 22, verse number 7. The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant to the lender. Consider the following scenario. Here is, again, an, uh, perhaps a husband. Maybe even against the bitter thoughts of his wife, but he choose to take on a sufficient amount of debt that in so doing handicaps in many ways what the funding for that family has to go to. The lion's share has to go to attempt to pay off this debt that the husband has accrued. So much so that maybe there's now not sufficient money to take care of anything should any disaster happen. The car gets a flat tire, no money now to pay for it. Maybe an excessive heat bill comes because ultimately something happened to the furnace. Not enough money to pay it. The husband has taken on so much debt 
there's now not a safety net at all for the family. That perhaps is much too much debt to take on, at least at that point in life. Consider something about the middle of that verse. Proverbs 22, verses 26 and 27. Rob not the poor because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted in the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of those that spoil to them. That opening verse, at least in the way the King James reads it, Rob not the poor because he's poor. In many ways, there's an underlying principle in the Hebrew that perhaps suggests to us an application that reminds us how important it is to pay off our debts in a timely way. That again reminds us we shouldn't take on so much debt that we cannot see any direct way even in a timely fashion to pay that off. Maybe that leads us to think about that text in the New Testament. Owe no man anything but to love one another. Now, rightly read and rightly studied, that does not say it's wrong to owe someone something. That is to say, to take on a debt that needs to be paid. But if we take on so much debt that it tampers with our spiritual life, I've got to work on Sunday. I can't go to church services. I've got to pay off this debt. I've taken on too much debt. If it keeps me from serving the Lord, I've taken on too much debt. Those kind of principles are things that the Bible would urge us to keep in mind. As we close that slide, doesn't it also mean that that insists we ought to be a little bit careful? Suppose that good friend comes and so earnestly asks us to provide collateral for some arrangement that he is making. It might well be that in our better interest, we're not sure that's wise, but we agree to it, and then he defaults at some point in the future, leaving us to pay what otherwise is a significant amount of debt. Again, might we somewhat know carefully those who would ask us this and those that we would be willing to do it for. It could ultimately have a bearing on our mental well-being if it leads us to anxiety, if it leads us to a tense-filled life, it ultimately may have been a great problem indeed. It could well be, then, as we close that slide, it brings us to lesson number 18. And it's the final one in the, in the series, at least up through tonight. I envision one more lesson. One more to bring all of this together in one final set of applications. But at least for right now, some would ask, many of these ideas have at least touched upon the nature of work, investment, the understanding of one's position in that. But what about inheritance? What about inheriting either from others or you and I perhaps leaving inheritance for our children or grandchildren? The lesson text for the night was in Proverbs 13. Let's revisit that chapter and look at verse number 22. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. A good man. That verse seemingly asserts before us the desire, at least the vision and thought, that we should be good stewards of what God has given us to the extent that 
we not only can have something perhaps for our children, and to ensure that at least in life they can proceed to a good foot, but that even our grandchildren, have you and I been sufficient stewards of what God has given us so that there would even at least be a moderate or somewhat of an amount that we could in goodness illustrate our consideration and love for our offspring by understanding a verse like that one. You can see upon this slide, it's a noble goal in life to not only appreciate God's blessings for ourselves, but to wish to share those good blessings with those we love, our close family, those who perhaps we have the opportunity to encourage and assist. To leave inheritance for our children is not wrong. To leave an inheritance for our grandchildren is not wrong. I would offer this degree of wisdom. Make sure that they understand the needfulness of using it correctly. To make sure they don't just fritter it or waste it away as we've learned in our study of Ecclesiastes some months ago. Because after all, those who do not appreciate the nature of that might well not understand the wisdom that should be employed in the usage of it. But as long as that lesson is there, how useful and what a blessing it would be to be able to contribute to the well-being of the generation that follows us and the generation after that, hoping that the wisdom we have been able to appreciate in our acquiring and usage of it, they too could use it just that same way and that it might be a blessing also to them. As I mentioned, the next lesson will attempt to put a degree of application in this that I hope each of us can utilize these lessons and do so in a way that will be a genuine blessing to the cause of God. Tonight's lesson, in addition to those 11 lessons before, has added those at the bottom. We've learned about the care that should be ours to think about sometimes what friends can do as much as we wish not to think of it that way. But after all, the Bible did remind us of it. And in addition to that, this host of lessons about the wisdom of how to appreciate these blessings financially and to be good stewards of what God has given to us. I hope that the, to this point the series has been somewhat helpful The book of Proverbs has almost been our exclusive guide. It's not to say there couldn't be other lessons drawn, but as I studied them, it appeared that all the others at least in some way were included in the 18 we've looked at in this this regard. That last lesson that'll come next Sunday will be a lesson that I hope will be ready to appreciate the application of some of these matters and do that in a way that'll be a blessing. Tonight, let's offer the invitation. If there would be someone in the audience that would wish to respond publicly to the gospel's call of invitation, it'd be our desire, it'd be our loving desire to offer assistance and help however we can do it. We simply want to do what the Bible teaches. And if there's sin in your life, though once a faithful Christian, and you'd like to return to a position of faithfulness, it's not a power that I have. It's not a power any man on earth has. Only the Lord Jesus, He's the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. He's the one that again added you to the church and only He can reinstate you to a position of faithfulness. If you would wish prayers to be offered to God upon your behalf as you make repentance of and confession of those sins, He's promised to forgive you. 
It could be that the sins are not financially related. But whatever they are, there is no sin the blood of Christ cannot forgive. If we'll but repent, and if we'll but approach the Lord as He has commanded, and tonight we'd be honored to help you in that way and to do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.